Hey, this is Robin. That's Micaiah. And you are joining us for a special episode of You Forgot One. Today on You Forgot One, the 30th anniversary of the release of Nirvana's Nevermind. Micaiah, this is Head and Shoulders, the greatest selling alternative album, alternative rock album of all time. This is an album that has sold nearly 11 million copies in the United States, nearly 28 million copies worldwide, regularly ranked among the top 20 greatest albums ever made on nearly every list that we would refer to as canon. And yet, for you and I both, this is not an album that made our first season list, either one of us. Neither one of us included this in our 50 albums for season one. And not to reveal too much about what's coming in season two, at this point, neither one of our season two potential lists include Nirvana's Nevermind. So what do our listeners need to understand about our difficulty uh-huh. with the tremendous amount of praise that is heaped on this album and how that can create, whether that's internally or externally, how that create a backlash of too much pressure to place on an album like this. Right. So I, I, I was 11 months old when this album came out. So I was like raised just kind of being told through rock magazines and specials on TV and stuff that this was the best album to come out in my lifetime is it kind of puts up a barrier between you and the album. It doesn't make you want to listen to it. It, it creates a barrier. Actually, you know, the, the original Rolling Stone list had it at 17. I think I thought that was high. And then the 2020 list came out and they had it at number six, just behind Abbey road, which was pretty shocking to me and kind of infuriating and kind of one of the reasons why to do this list. Cause I don't know that Nevermind is a top six greatest album ever made. You know what I mean? Like that's something where I'm like, I just, I just don't buy it for all the Gen X people who put together a list like that. I, I can see why it's important to you, but I don't know if it's important to, you know, people who aren't white middle-aged Gen X people who came of age in 1991. I don't, I don't know. I mean, of course a lot of young people like them, but I don't think, nearly as many people care about them as that key demographic. So there's always been a, like a, an obstacle for me with this album. So I don't know how many times it would take us, how many trials of nominating 50 albums and us getting it down to 25. I don't know how many times we would do that before I would actually put Nirvana on there, but we had a great opportunity because it's the 30th anniversary this year. And when we got done with the Beatles episode, we were talking to Jillian about wanting to have her back because we enjoyed her so much. And she was the one who's like, well, you know, never mind, 30th anniversary is coming up. We should do that. And I said, you're absolutely right. You know, so we've been looking forward to this for a really long time. So I, I am very happy to have her back to talk about this album that I struggle with. Uh, and we'll see where you and I land. You know, it does this belong on our list? Are we, are you and I going to say nope, but maybe we'll nominate in utero some other time? So... Let me be the white middle class 
middle-aged guy who came of age in the early 90s and Please. speak to Nevermind. I remember when this album came out and I remember, I remember, I mean, you talk about the, expl- I mean, this album went from no one having any idea what it was to everyone had this album. Like mm-hmm. the, it was, it was night and day. It did not exist in the cultural zeitgeist at all. And then it was like the next day they were everywhere. I mean, I, I, there's no other band in my lifetime that came on the scene as quickly and as shockingly as Nirvana did mm-hmm. at the end of 1991, the beginning of 1992. And especially with uh, the release of the, in, of the music video for Smells Like Teen Spirit. I mean, man, it, it was just everywhere. That being said, there... There was an immediate, there was an immediate skyrocket, skyrocket success of Nirvana, and Nevermind is a great album. There's no question about it; it's a great album. But I think pretty quickly, within a year maybe of this album coming out, there also began to be this kind of like swell of like pushback because of how quickly they had gained so much popularity, and then they were the kind of lead act that you know was carrying the torch of grunge music and carrying the torch of not just a, a, a genre of music, but what became, you know, a, a culture, like it became a, a sense of fashion. It became this kind of like Seattle identity. It became, you know, Nevermind came out. And then within a year, Pearl Jam's 10 comes out within three years, Soundgarden Super Unknown comes out, like, you know, Alice in Chains released, like you have all of these bands from Seattle, all these grunge bands from Seattle that explode onto the scene that all kind of follow Nevermind in through the door. Admittedly, for me personally, I was a bigger fan of the Smashing Pumpkins and of Stone Temple Pilots during this period of time um, than I was of Nirvana or or of Nevermind. And personally, I tend to be a bigger fan of In Utero as an album. I find In Utero to be a more interesting album than Nevermind. But I also remember exactly where I was when I heard that Kurt Cobain died. It was spring break. I was in middle school. My family was on vacation in the Florida Keys. And my sister and I and the two brothers of the other family who were with us on spring break vacation, we spent that entire day on the beds in the hotel room watching MTV all day long in in very much the same way that I did watching 24-hour news channels on 9-11 in 2001. I mean, the, if there are two moments in my life that I can remember something happened and I spent the rest of the day glued to the television, finding out what was going on, those two experiences were September 11th, 2001 and the date of Kurt Cobain's suicide. And so I also struggle with how much of my view of this band or of this album is the posthumous revisionist history that happens in the aftermath of Kurt's tragic death. And I don't know that there's an easy answer for that, but if anyone can help us understand it, I think it's going to be Jillian Carr. And so I'm so excited that we had the opportunity to talk to her about this. So we're going to take a break. We're going to let you hear from our sponsor, and then we will be back with our friend Jillian Gar to talk all things 30th anniversary of Nirvana's Nevermind.
Jillian, tell us about how you first discovered Nirvana. What was your pathway in to this band and why are they so meaningful to you? Well, it's funny because uh, the first time I heard them was when I was assigned to do the review of the Sub Pop 200 collection that came out at the end of 1988. And I was excited about that because it meant I could get a free copy of the of the box. It was uh, three EPs in that incarnation. And Nirvana had a song on there called Spank Through. And I didn't like it. It's still not one of my favorites. And, uh, you know, and I honestly don't think it would make anyone's top 10 Nirvana songs list. Uh, so I didn't I didn't mention it in the review. So the next year, I was still doing the calendar section at the Rocket at that time, the Rocket magazine. And in typing up the listings, that's probably the first time I typed Nirvana's name. Because I didn't type it in the Sub Pop 200 review because I didn't mention them. So I think it, I think I even identified it in my book, Entertain Us, The Rise of Nirvana, in the afterword or something. I think it was for the March uh, 89 issue. That may have well been the first time I typed their name without even thinking about it. But then in June, the managing editor, Grant, asked me to review Bleach, their first album on Sub Pop. And I did like that one. What I liked, and it's interesting looking at it now or looking back at it, how it sort of, it seems to sort of foretell where they may go because of course about a girl is the obvious thing that everyone always mentions. And, you know, probably they always say Beatlesque when they talk about that song, which it is. Uh, but the other songs, some of the others, you know, they, they have a, a melody or they choose a song because of its melody, like Love Buzz, the, they, Love Buzz is on the album that was their first single, and that's a cover by Shocking Blue. So, you know, they're already kind of hints ahead that that they're not just going to be, um, you know, this this one note, heavy, sludgy kind of band. that I didn't pay an awful lot of attention to them because I was kind of it seems strange to say this now but I was interested in kind of more off the wall and and weird bands 
And so a lot of the sub pop bands were sort of too normal in a sense. And of course they wow. were alternative. They were nothing like what was on top 40 radio, but I would go see uh, like Jane County came to town. Oh wow! Um, there was this obscure LA band called the Fibonacci's. Um, uh, who was, oh, Lisa Suckdog. That was a, a notable show at the Vogue. All these shows happened at the Vogue, which was this, this strange little venue. Nirvana played there a couple of times um, where, where they just had off the wall stuff like that. So then when, when was the first time you got to see Nirvana perform? Well, it was, it was too late. And uh, I blame Peggy for this. Um, actually, though, I have to blame myself for one, for one show. I, my first show, I should be telling you that it was in August 1989. Because I was at a show at Coca, the Center on Contemporary Art. It was a it was a sub pop weekend, and uh, they had these great parody shirts. You probably see the sub pop shirts that you know say mm-hmm. "Loser" has "Loser" on the front and the sub pop logo on the back. And so I actually might be sitting over there. But um, so for this weekend, someone did a parody shirt that said "Sugar" on the front in the same type, and on the back it had the sub pop logo, but. Uh, it was changed so that at the bottom, instead of Super Fuzz Big Muff, it read Super Sugar Big Buzz. So, you know, we had the loser shirts were kind of an in-joke, and this was an in-joke of an in-joke. But it was, um, Mudhoney was playing this show, which was why I wanted to be there. And I volunteered to serve, to work the bar so that I could get in free. You know, remember that, volunteering gets you into things. And uh, years later, I thought, well, Mudhoney was the bigger band. Surely they must have headlined. But no, Nirvana did. And I left after Mudhoney, so I missed them then. And then I wanted to see them when they played the Paramount in on Halloween of October 91. And I called the promoter and she said they didn't have any tickets left. I guess they didn't have, you know, they didn't have a secondary market for tickets the way they do now. You'd go online to StubHub or something. So I missed that. And it just, oh, that just killed me. So I actually really didn't see them until... September 92, September 11th, in fact, um, just this past weekend, they played the arena or the Coliseum rather. And uh, so I, I came to them late, but then I did end up seeing a lot of really unusual shows after that, because a month later, uh, they played a secret show opening for Mud Honey at the Crocodile. They did two shows and October 3rd, they played up at Western Washington University in Bellingham. And then they came back down to Seattle and played the crocodile. And I managed to get into that show because that was the day I interviewed Courtney Love. So all of that's all uh, that was that was a happening weekend. So I saw that show. And then in August 93, they played a last minute show that was raising money for the Mia Zapata investigation. Mia was the singer of the Gits who'd been murdered just the month before and they'd hired a private detective. And the show was to raise funds for that. And Tad was the headliner, but Nirvana was added at the last minute. So, you know, these are the shows that not everyone got to see. So I saw that one. And then I was at Unplugged as well. So. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah, I was. Wow. Um, that was uh, a friend of mine was was uh, friends with uh, Lori Goldston. Uh, she hung out with the Black Cat Orchestra. Lori was the cellist in that band. And Lori was the cellist on the U.S. tour for in utero and they were going to be in New York. And my friend mentioned she was going to go to New York because Lori had said he'd get in the show. And I just sort of invited myself. I said, can she get me into? 
And she agreed, yes. And then my friend ended up not going. And so I just went on my own. And they, I saw another show in New York. They played a regular show. And um, I saw the Live and Loud show, uh, which was you know broadcast on New Year's Eve. But they actually taped it on December 13th at a big, a big ferry terminal that it was where the ferries left to go to um, Victoria in British Columbia. But they didn't run during the winter. So this huge shed and they just, we did the show in there. And then the last time I saw them was at uh, the Seattle Center Arena. They did two shows on, I think it's, it's either the 7th and the 8th or the 8th and the 9th. I think it's the 7th and the 8th. could look that up. But um, I didn't see the last U.S. show, but the next to last. The penultimate show, that's what they'd mm-hmm. say. So, mm-hmm. um, so, I mean, by the time, uh, I guess to get back to your original, original question, um, you know, I could see that they were they were building the interest was building in them, and Seattle bands were catching on by then. I mean, both Alice in Chains and Soundgarden had released major label albums, uh, but then when Nevermind came out, that was the one that really got me because it has such a strong pop sensibility. That's what I think makes them different from the other, the big four, as I call them: Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, and Alice in Chains. Pearl Jam, to some degree, has some pop in there, but I still think of them as more hard rock. But Nirvana, I mean, especially on Nevermind, it's unmistakable. You could, without the fuzzy guitars, they could just be a straight pop song, some of those. One thing about that time, that fall, I guess, what, that'd be 30 years ago, and into the next year, 92, living in Seattle was kind of like uh, being in college again, when you'd walk around the campus, and out of the dorms, you'd hear whatever the popular song was, the most popular song amongst young people, you'd hear that song as you just pass by the dorms, especially in this, you know, the warmer weather, everyone's windows are open. And that's what it was like in Seattle. You'd, you'd be walking around and you're not on a campus. This was just in my neighborhood, which is, uh, you know, where the, the cool and hip people supposedly live or the supposedly cool and hip people live. It was coming out of all the apartments. Wow. Hearing, you'd be hearing, especially Nevermind, but, but the other, you know, the other Seattle bands and all kinds of bands, I mean, bands, all kinds of bars were playing Nevermind. 
you know, sports bars would be playing Nevermind. Gay bars were playing Nevermind. And people, they'd have a tape and they'd be playing the album and it would end and they'd just turn the tape over and play it again. <laughs> it was saturating the whole city. Well, let me ask this question because this is something that Mackay and I have gone back and forth a lot in the last 24 hours talking about this album. And, and of course, we have an age difference. So I'm 40 and Mackay is 30. So I can distinctly remember when when Nevermind came out. I, I remember that first big hit. I remember when, you know, Smells Like Teen Spirit debuted on MTV. I remember um, how quickly the album kind of became inescapable, that it broke in a way that I had never in my life to that point experienced an album break, that it it went from a band that no one knew about to suddenly being everywhere instantly yeah and, or, or at least it felt that way to me you had the experience of living kind of living at home base when that all happened because you were living in seattle at the time so you were also experiencing to a certain extent kind of the slow bubbling of this scene and of these bands that you know, kind of the the weird, almost incestuous relationships between all these bands of, you know, shared drummers and guitar players and, you know, who dates who and, and, and all of the just relationships within that scene. And then one by one, you know, as you said, you know, sound, as you wrote in, in the article, sound, Soundgarden had, had signed to A&M, uh, you know, Alice in Chains had, had signed, uh, um, you know, Screaming Trees, like there are bands that were a part of this group, part of this scene, part of this culture of the city at the time that all started to kind of break into, into major labels. And so one of the things that we've been trying to wrap our heads around as a band that started out on Sub Pop, and of course Sub Pop has released albums from many different artists, but Sub, Part, Sub Pop at its heart is a Seattle record label. Um, and in so many of its greatest artists in its history have had a very close relationship, if not necessarily being from Seattle, have had a very close relationship to that community. And Sub Pop really comes close to bankruptcy in early 1990. Um, you know, a, a financially mismanaged record label, uh, there, there are rumors of Capitol Records buying out the record label. There are rumors of Atlantic Records buying out the record label. And there are a number of bands at this time in Seattle, a part of this scene, who all kind of jumped ship from Sub Pop around the same time with this, you know, kind of underlying reasoning being that like, oh, this this label's about to go under. We, <laughs> you know, we, we better find a life raft somewhere. And so, it, and so I think it, it, it does kind of give a reasoning outside of just greed or desire for a larger stage for, for why some, some bands may have left. But Nirvana goes from being a sub-pop band that has a, a, pretty, um, a pretty small but loyal following in Seattle to suddenly releasing this album on, on DGC, which is essentially Geffen Records. It explodes and, and there's no looking back at that point. And so I guess my, my question is, as someone who was there during that period of time and lived through it, was there any pushback to that? Were there, were there people in, in that area at the time? Were there people in that scene at the time that kind of saw them as sellouts? Was, was, was there any kind of, 
discomfort with how quickly they had gained this kind of national and then global popularity? Or, or was it one of those things that because that big push of popularity of then, then of course opened up the floodgates and it seemed like everyone in Seattle found a major, you know, major label record deal within the next two years, even without recording an album. Um, it, it did, was it one of those things that they were seen as kind of people who had sold out and left, or was it, they were seen as the ones who were kind of taking people with them through, through the, through the gatekeepers. was really uncomfortable about the success of the band and who worried about the selling out type of thing. You know who that was? Heard. Yeah. Big time. And uh, the other two guys to a lesser extent, um, I was just, I've been reading some stuff and maybe this was to uh, Rolling Stone. I think when they first did a story on them on Nirvana, as they were getting big, this is before the cover story. Uh, and Chris Novoselic is just, he's obviously a little discombobulated by everything. And he says, I wish we had a time machine and could go back a couple months. I'd tell people to get lost, which, you know, you usually don't hear people say when their album is, is becoming so successful. Um, he and Dave learned to roll with it pretty soon, but you know, there, there was Kurt self-conscious enough about it that when they were on the cover of Rolling Stone, he wears the t-shirt, uh, corporate magazines still suck, uh, <laughs> which I, th- I thought was, was a nice touch. I don't remember hearing that many people here push back about it. I think because for one thing, the, su- the success was just so astonishing. I mean, it was, as you say, it broke like no album had ever broken before. And it wasn't just the album, it was the scene. It was 92 it was just this insane, crazy year where Everything was just so over the top that, <laughs> I don't know, selling out didn't come into it because this isn't even what bands look for when they're being successful. Yes, number one album, but you don't have all this other craziness going on. You know, there's Seattle with the, oh, and they drink coffee and they wear plaid shirts. And it was this whole grunge style type of thing. And then they're wearing this, you know, they're, they're modeling it on the runway. And, and Megan Jasper's great prank about the grunge slang just making up grunge slang words for the New York Times. That was so amazing. <laughs> you think of, well, that, that was our reaction. See, to just prank him even harder <laughs> when that happened. But I, I wanted to ask you, Jillian. So, I mean, it, 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 these things just happen. You know, um, London 1977 is the year punk breaks, right? And suddenly everyone has an album, Stranglers, Slits, Clash, Sex Pistols, everyone. And, Pretty similar to America at the same time, the CBGB New York scene. And then Seattle, 91, 92, these things just happen. But how, how does Nirvana 
break? How does it, how does it, how does this cultural phenomena happen? I can kind of wrap my mind around punk, this kind of post Andy Warhol people, you know, um, just over, you know, uh, the, the hippie movement, right. Um, unemployment everywhere, poverty and over prog rock. I can, I can wrap my mind around that, but for, for some reason, uh, understanding how grunge happens and why it explodes. So how, how does this happen? Well, you know, a lot of that's that indefinable factor of timing. Yeah. Nirvana broke through. One of the things I thought about was Tracy Chapman. It made me think about mm. her success. Uh, mm, okay. because also, I think the similarity is that when those records came out, there was nothing like that on the radio. There was just nothing out there like it. So, I mean, I remember hearing people say that when Fast Car came on their car radio, they had to stop and pull over because they were just, what is this? What is this amazing thing? Mm -hmm. And I think Nirvana was similar in that there was nothing like that on the radio. Certainly in the previous year, there hadn't been, or a couple years. Uh, You know, they were talking about hair metal. And that was the, those were the big bands. on Those were the bands on the charts, but you had a lot of soloists. Like in this piece I wrote, I mentioned Garth Brooks uh, had, you know, he had Rope in the Wind. That was a huge album, 14 million eventually. Um, and I'm not sure if Madonna had an album out there. Uh, but, you know, like kind of big mainstream pop acts mm-hmm. were big and solo singers and these hair metal bands. And there was nothing like Nirvana that had that kind of authenticity. And I think in Nirvana's case also, they just had really strong hooks underneath i i think that's the Mm -hmm. other key because you know they were influenced by the pixies and they were influenced by sonic youth but neither of those bands write conventional pop songs um i mean you can put them side by side and it's obvious and those are the kind of people i think that would say oh nirvana sold out because they built on this and just made it more commercial the thing is the reason why they didn't sell out is because that was just the way kurt wrote and the band put the songs together they weren't trying to achieve that kind of thing. I mean, on TV now we see where they can create a hit band, but you know, by and large, that doesn't work. If you're trying, it's not going to succeed like that. So they just had a stronger pop sensibility. Um, Maybe the reason they top REM is because REM had so many more albums out. I think, well, they did, they had more albums. They had more than one album out before they signed a Warner's or I forget if they were on a subsidiary. And I mean, certainly their records have sold a lot once they got big, um, you know, they played stadiums, but I guess because there's their success wasn't as explosive. It was more gradual. Yeah. Whereas Nirvana had the explosive success uh, and, you know, Allison Chains and Soundgarden had released records on their major labels and those hadn't exploded and taken off. I mean, you kind of wonder if Nirvana hadn't been around would those bands have, you know, gone on to have the top 10 hits that they did? Well, it's just fascinating to me because, well, I mean, I was only a baby like when this happened, but still in my lifetime, it's probably going to be the last time a rock band, particularly an alternative rock band, can achieve anything like that. You know, I'm not sure any other band has really released something that heavy and been that popular.
this is this is a delicate question. In in my lifetime, I'm 40 years old. In my lifetime, Kurt Cobain is the only person is the only music star whose death has been as culturally significant. I, I mean, there, there's no one. There, there's there's outside of like world political leaders. There's there's no one else in my lifetime whose death was as culturally significant as Kurt Cobain's death was, and and I wonder how much that also impacts in the last twenty six years. I wonder how much of that impacts the way that we see this band, and and that 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 tragic loss also very quickly kind of perpetuated this band into that you know, almost deity stage, you know, that they, that after, after Kurt's death, Nirvana was, was then seen in such a way that it was almost as if they could do no wrong. Well, I mean, obviously that had nothing to do with their breakthrough because that was in the future. And so that was not part of anything to do with why they broke through and why they caught on and everything. But after, after his death, well, yeah, I mean, obviously that becomes part of it. That becomes part of the story. It's inevitable. And um, it was, uh, let's see, at, was it the first opening? When they first opened the Nirvana exhibit at the Museum of Pop Culture, which was then called the Experience Music Project, uh, I think it was Dow or somebody in one of the talks that they gave during this big event was saying, you know, trying to play down the tragedy, you know, that's not what's important and, and, focus on the good times or something along those lines. And I thought, well, you know, it's a tragedy that gives it resonance, really. Um, that That is so much a part of the story now. And people looking into kind of reading foreshadowings of doom in, in the things, um, which certainly are there in In Utero. I mean, the band members themselves have said that. And just, I think there's part of them that's uncomfortable with that album because of all this stuff. Mm. But even, and I quoted this in my piece, I even think that chorus in Teen Spirit is kind of spooky because I was um, reciting the lyrics for my mother because she could never understand the lyrics really in, in rock songs. So he's singing, I'm worst at what I do best well. <laughs> and for this gift, I feel blessed. Our little tribe has always been and always will until the end. he wasn't consciously thinking that or writing that obviously when he did it uh although he did always have you know he did always have that depressive side maybe maybe that also adds to it because it wasn't like uh they got successful and then he became depressed and did drugs that part was already there um i don't know if he was ever officially diagnosed as as depressed 
Although I remember Courtney Love did an interview in which she mentioned he took Prozac and you need a prescription for that. So that presumes a diagnosis. But, you know, he had a kind of moody, depressed personality before Nevermind. That situation exacerbated it, I think. But that was there before. And, you know, there, there was a darkness in the lyrics throughout. There was also a lot of humor. That's one thing that I think is missing when people get caught up in the tragedy and the resonance and the foreshadowings of doom and all that. Yes, that's there, but they were also a really funny band. Um, and people, the, the lyrics on, on Nevermind even too, you know, they're funny. And the band, especially live, they, you know, they could be kind of goofy. Um, so so that, that part people forget. They think, oh, he was just this depressed drug addict. Well, you know, that's not the whole story. Right. So, so that's unfortunate that people forget that. And I mean, that was also such a large part of the appeal is they would be expected to do these TV spots like, hi, we're Nirvana and you're watching MTV and you watch these television spots and they're, they're not playing along. They're, they're not reading their copy. They're just doing whatever they want to do and saying whatever they want to say. And, you know, so, and that's part of the appeal too. the, like, like I'm here to play music. I'm not here to like play along with, you know, your, your television network or whatever, you know? And I think, you know, that, that was a big part of their appeal, especially for kids who have been born in the 70s, completely missed out on the hippie generation, grown up in like all the, the kind of bullshit of like the Reagan era. You know, so and, and then, you know, coming of age, you know, in the 90s, I think that there was just kind of that that kind of, you know, where, where irony is king and cynicism and just kind of like, you know, we're not we're not going to play ball with. With, with ABC and MTV and Rolling Stone and all that kind of stuff. I'm so happy cause today found my friends here in my head. I'm so ugly, that's okay cause so are you. His heroin use starts escalating at the time of Nevermind's release. But what was striking to me was that he was finding all the work he had to do in the interviews too much before the album had even come out. I found an mm-hmm. interview in The Rocket, The Rocket magazine, in their September issue, which means the writer had to talk to him in August. The album isn't even released yet, and he's already complaining about the amount of work he has to do. Every day is Nirvana business now, and he's complaining about that. And you just think, oh, you have no idea what's coming. You know, because then a few months later, there's the onslaught. And so I think that pressure and maybe his depression that leads to him escalating his heroin use. And then he has two problems. He has, he still has his depression, and now he has his drug addiction to deal with. So it didn't resolve yeah. anything. It just gave him another problem. Yeah. So, and, and one doesn't, one doesn't solve the other one exacerbates the other. There, there are a lot of ways in which we do revisionist history around this band 
in the in the aftermath of of Kurt's suicide. But I I also think that there is a skyrocket uh, breakthrough that has that that has nothing to do at least on the surface that has nothing to do with his drug problem or his depression like i mean it's it is it is the sheer talent of this band at at this time but there also there there are a couple other you know and again this is timing but there are a couple other cultural elements at play and i, I want to ask you to talk about one of them and that's the video the music video for smells like teen spirit and for someone who can remember being an 11 year old being a 12 year old when this when this video came out um the only thing i can compare it to in terms of mtv was 1984 1983 end of 1983 when the thriller video comes out for michael jackson that's the only other comparison i can make because there's about a six month period of time where MTV is playing an eight and a half minute long music video twice an hour. So if you take away commercials, they're doing 42 minutes of actual programming an hour and they're devoting 17 minutes of that (laughs) to one, to one video. And you think about it, that, that essentially means that, you know, 33% of MTV's programming every hour, every day for six months was Michael Jackson's thriller. And that's <laughs> the only other thing I can compare it to what it was like when Smells Like Teen Spirit hit MTV at the beginning of 1992. Can you tell us a little bit about that and, and just why the, why the music video for this song was was such a big deal and why it helped cement not just this song in this album but this band as this kind of cultural touchstone of the early 90s well certainly the song was uh doing well on radio was performing better than the label expected and that was happening but i know martin katsu was doing promotion for the label at the time he said you know it was the video that put it over the top and it really did and um I remember when MTV first went on the air and they used to show videos, you know, they show music videos all the time. But I found that my favorite videos were usually just performance videos. And sometimes you like a good, fun, um, extravagant video, but, but the ones I tended to watch a lot were pretty much straight performance. And that's basically what Teen Spirit is. It's a performance video and there isn't a lot of, you know, exotic costumes and they're not in Brazil with girls in bikinis or anything like that. Although they do have cheerleaders, but um, what Dave Girl described it as a pep rally from hell, and I just I just think it would appeal to the target audience because you could see these kids going crazy in a high school gym, and like every kid probably wanted to do when they were at a pep rally, or that you wish you could do. So I think it just tapped into that that sort of wild side, as indeed even the director of the video found it hard to control because he wanted the kids to come out of the stands at a certain time, but eventually they just got fed up and are just running around and knocking things over and stealing the instruments. And the band was just going along with it thinking, Hey, this is great. This is mayhem. We like this. But um, so, so it just tapped into the feelings of that teenage audience. I think that's partly why it, it went over. For a man whose hair is covered, whose hair is covering his face the whole time. 
that his the look of his face is still ingrained in my brain forever and anyone who's ever seen the video yeah he's like he's yeah. backlit his hair's in his face but it's like just this most perfect image of who he is what the band is what music's gonna be for you know the next 48 months or whatever you know like it, it, it's 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 a really striking image and i i think it might be the most influential or popular music video that doesn't use dance animation or sex to like as a gimmick everything else kind of rely, you know like dire straits has the animation even sledgehammer kind of has the animation uh, mc uh, scratch cat you know with the <laughs> paul abdul the end of the animation there and then all the dancing and with Michael Jackson and the sexuality of people like Madonna and even the hair metal guys. And then this happens and it's not trying to get you turned on. It's not trying to wow you with animation. It's not giving you choreography. You can go and do with your friends in the backyard. It's just like, <laughs> like you said, it's just chaos and, and pure mayhem. And somehow that is just exactly what that generation of people was looking for mm-hmm. at the time. Yeah. Uh, it's like it it sits with you in that perfect place and so it's 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 a it's a very well done music video and again i think the strength of the song helps as well um of course but but during that period of time where you you pair a great song with a great music video in in a genre that is radically different from anything else being played on mtv at the time um and it really did there was there was this sense at the end of 1991 beginning of 1992 that you you were seeing something brand new, that you were a part of something. I wonder to what extent that may explain some of that meteoric rise is because Nirvana was so different to everything else going on at the time that to be a fan of Nirvana felt like you were a part of that kind of revolution. It felt like you were a part of this, this change, um, whether that was generational or just, you know, in, in culture. Um, it, 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 to, to be a fan of Nirvana felt like you were a part of, of something different than what had come before. One baby to another says I'm lucky to meet you. I'm done. Yeah, it's something more forward thinking. Mm-hmm. I mean, it didn't pan out like that ultimately, I don't think. But but you thought there was, yeah, this huge shift has come and the new mm-hmm. generation has arrived. But then the change didn't end up being quite as much as you thought and yeah. kind of sank back down. But yeah, there was was kind of a freedom. You you, I think people that like the like the band, you said you like Nirvana. You're not on the sidelines anymore. You were on the field for a change. You were the center. You were the focus. One thing we haven't talked about yet mm-hmm. that has come back up uh, is the cover. One of the most iconic covers 
in rock history. I mean, like it's now it it is Dark Side of the Moon, Sergeant Pepper, or Abbey Road. You know, it is one of these this just iconic album covers. Yeah. Um, and I don't know. I struggle with like, is it a great album cover? It's a provocative one. Uh, it's it's one we all know. I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's. I mean, it's easy to love the Sgt. Pepper album cover. I don't know if I love the Nevermind album cover, but it, it certainly is fascinating, and it comes back up in the news every so often. And uh, with the 30th anniversary, it it's back in the news again. Oh, yeah, I know. I mean, the worst <laughs> part about that is that now, whenever they write about it, they'll have to bring up this lawsuit, which oddly right. seems to have dropped out of the news. Haven't heard anything. Well, I think when everyone saw the picture of him a couple of years ago posing in the pool recreating the cover with the tattoo across his chest that says never mind i think people are like maybe he's not as uh, damaged by this photograph as as he's letting on um, so, um i don't want to get sued for libel <laughs> um well i was but, reading um in an article and i can't i cannot remember who posted this but it was an article uh and they talked to various lawyers about issues that may or may not come up with this Mm-hmm. So it's certainly it's not meant to be definitive. It's just these lawyers giving their opinion. And one lawyer mentioned that, oh, yeah, I see people saying, well, he posed and made the cover and doesn't that show this? And and I think it was a woman. She said, you know, not necessarily. And maybe that's not the road you want to go down because you think of uh, victims of sexual assault mm-hmm. who don't report it for years, for decades sometimes. And they're allowed to do that now. Um so, you know, yeah. we, we let that go by. She said that shouldn't just be an immediate disqualifier, but that could depend on the judge. Yeah. No, I, I thought about that, too. And but someone. Then, but they, I did read another story where the photographer, he asked the photographer if he was like, OK, well, I want to get naked for one of the pictures. And the photographer's like, no, please keep your shorts on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for what for, you know, and, and that, that, that that might not even be true, but it is what I've read. Um, which doesn't would've, make it true, just because it was out there for me to read on the internet. But <laughs> would have been more, would have been the more daring thing to do. It it made me think of um. I used to have this article. It was in the Village Voice when, and this would have been uh, in the eighties, I guess, when the National Endowment for the Arts was uh, getting in trouble for putting out provocative art and our taxpayer dollars going to that. When you know it's mm-hmm. a minuscule amount of your taxpayer dollars, folks, but. There was this one photographer who took pictures of naked children. And so there were questions about that. And there was one of this, this boy who'd been running around his mother's studio and he kind of poses on this chair and the photographer took his picture. It wasn't a session. He, he knew the mother and she was an artist and the kids running around. And so when the Village Voice did their article and on this, on this whole controversy, they tracked the kid down. He is now an adult. And he did the same pose naked. <laughs> right, right. Of course, that wasn't something that was um, ever on an album cover and is universally known. And that, Not yeah, one of the most sure. famous images in the history of recorded music. But yeah, to get back to the album, I mean, aside from aside from what's happened now, uh, yeah, I, I thought it was great. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't think of a more immediately recognizable and as evocative an image that that is that again is it is is so well known 
across, you know, that period of time. There's, there's nothing else from the first five years of the nineties that you look at and you're like, Oh, that's, that would, that's what the image should be. It, you know, never, never mind's cover is, is, is tops. I think. Even listening back to it so much over the last few days, I I, I don't know that every song that every song works. I, I I struggle with a few of them. I will say I I'm constantly I constantly forget how diverse an album it is. That it doesn't have just one sound, and I think it's easy because "Smells Like Teen Spirit" is kind of the definitive song from the album. I think it's easy to think, oh, that you're going to get, you know, 12 or 13 tracks of, of that. And then when you listen to it and you realize how different these songs are mm-hmm. and even thinking about, you know, if, if you're listening to this on, on vinyl, which I think so, so much of the way we process records, because we think about greatest albums, we have the tendency to begin on vinyl and on vinyl. If you look at a side one side, two of this album, you're, you know, you get Small Sake Teen Spirit as the first track on side one, the last track on side one is Polly. You you get this like very different bookends to just one side of this record. Uh, and so I, I'm I'm immediately reminded again every time I listen to it how just how diverse uh, in terms of the the style of music you hear on this. And again, another one of the areas where that separates this band out. Yeah. But, yeah. But but even as much as I love, never mind. You know, you mentioned diversity. And mm-hmm. when you think about it, you know, Bleach and Nevermind and In Utero are they're all very different albums. Very different albums. I mean, there, there's quite a diversity there. I know I read, I think this this was Kurt, maybe it wasn't the last Rolling Stone interview. He was saying how, you know, he thought they were using the Nirvana formula too much, uh, or the Pixies formula, you could say, with the with the quiet verse and loud chorus. And he just wanted to do something different. And he looked at how the Beatles had gone from the Please Please Me album to Sgt. Pepper in what, that's four years or whatever it was. And he wanted Nirvana to make that kind of kind of leap. And they didn't make a leap that dramatic, obviously, but but still the the three albums are quite different. I mean, they do they do show a progression and a difference um and yeah one wonders what might have come next underneath the bridge top is sprung a leak and the animals have trapped Bobby
Yeah, I've said this before, but I mean, I I just I just I, I struggle with grunge in general. Um, but Nirvana for me, just like being told since I was a kid that like Nevermind's the best album to come out in my lifetime. <laughs> makes it hard to approach it you know what i mean it's just like uh i don't know i don't i don't i don't, I don't think so you know what i mean so it, it has so much built up before i even have the chance to get to it listening to it man like that that side one is real strong like that it's about as strong as a side one to an album can be mm-hmm. you know as teen spirit your ultimate opener and as you know, as someone who didn't even like like Nirvana, it's it's like it, it is the the turning point. And if you're a guitarist and you play guitar, anyone who's bought a guitar, owns a guitar, tried to play a guitar, it's the moment where everyone the first thing you try to learn is Wild Thing, and then after it Smells Like Teen Spirit, everyone's trying to learn actually Smells Like Teen Spirit instead of Wild Thing. You know what I mean? Like it's just it is ingrained, even if I'm not seeking it out. Mm-hmm. So going back and like listening to it for myself, like getting into that side was like, wow, and Bloom, uh, Lithium, like that, that entire side one is just really, really strong. And I, I don't think the, the second half is as strong as side one, but I think it's paced really well. Yeah. So you get things like Drain You, which is mm-hmm. really great, really exciting. And you can say like, oh yeah, people are going to be ripping this off until about OK <laughs> Computer. Like, Blur's gonna rip this off, even if they're saying it's ironic. Uh, the, the, the all the Brit people, everyone has like, yeah, okay, I get this. And in a, in a similar kind of thing, like, uh, was it in planes or on a plane? On a, on a, on a plane, which I which is a great one. And then this like dark, grungy, I think maybe potential Beatles send up something in the way. You know, we talk about like, oh, they're clearly inspired by the Beatles, like, yeah, the the last track. <laughs> last track and quotes uh, something in the way it's just like well you're gonna think of george harrison when you listen to that well, your, your mind's filling it in before you know what i mean like every time i listen to it my mind like wants to go there mm-hmm. um and then like the actual final track the the bonus track if you have the original record or the tape just like that like oh no we're still the guys who did bleach like we're yeah. still <laughs> We're still, you know, maniacs. Uh, we we, I, we still have this like hardcore ethos in us. Yeah, which I I really enjoy the final track. I think it's like I both both endings, like the kind of ending an epilogue are two great ways to to end an album. Uh, it's not it's not perfect for me, but I can I can finally say now like I see the appeal, and I know why everyone holds it as high as it does, and. For a long time, I've just been like, just been like pushing it off. Just like, no, like, don't <laughs> qu- quit putting, you know, like the way Gen X was just like, get get your Crosby, Stills, and Nash away from me. Like, that's just kind of how I felt. Like, I don't need that. Um, but now I'm kind of thinking, listeners, like, you know, maybe I should, when the record finally comes back in stock at some of the record stores, uh, maybe I should pick it up. Mm-hmm. Maybe I should actually pick this one up and and really and give it like a spin that way and, yeah. and hold on to. It. I think I think I I think I owe it that. I've I've, I've really been turned on to it, um, listening to it many times per day. 
leading up to this, which I didn't expect because I'd heard it before, of course. Yeah. And I've just been like, whatever, guys. But I don't know. Something about getting ready for this podcast. I was like, I, I was, I, I, I like, I got it. I totally got it. I don't know if it's just because I turned 30 recently and maybe that trick. No idea. But I, I'm, I'm totally into it. That being said, if I had to choose Desert Island Nirvana album, I love Unplugged. Mm. Not to be the guy who makes the weirdest choice or a weird choice, but I I, I think it's really fantastic. Um, you really because because you can't hide anything on Unplugged. Yeah, you can't hide it through distortion and everything. It's just like, oh, these guys, these this is a great band. This is a really great band. You can when you listen to when when they pull it all back, you're like, oh yeah, this song could have been on. Beatles for sale or something like this is I totally get like the Beatles influence here uh, not that that matters not that a band has to be like the Beatles for them to be worth anything but uh, but also like the the David Bowie cover is is fantastic oh. I wish it had the Velvet Underground cover that's kind of like the only thing it's missing because I, I, I do really enjoy the, the Here She Comes uh, Velvet Underground cover mm-hmm. I would like to hear that like Unplugged style Jillian, we want to thank you so much for being with us again for our listeners. How can they, how can they follow you? What can they go purchase right now on Amazon or their local independent uh, bookstore? Uh, What, what, especially thinking about Nirvana, what can they go find of yours right now? Well, the, the ones I recommend um, are entertain us the rise of Nirvana and the thing you're reading, it, it's not an article, it's an ebook, a one song ebook, and it's called uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit, the Alternatine Anthem of the 90s. And I think that might only be available on Amazon. And uh, it's an ebook, but if you have, um, I know if you have a desktop, well, desktop, laptop, you can download a Kindle app from Amazon and read books that way if you don't have a Kindle. So you can still buy it and read it. And it, I think it's $2.99. So it's, you know, less than a latte or something, less than a magazine. Uh, and um, and it's good too, because it's, it's, it's like, it's a, you can sit down and finish it in like in one go. Like it's, yeah. and you'll get a lot out of it. And, you know, if, if you got an afternoon where you're just like, I want to read a book today and pat myself on the back for it, this is a good <laughs> one to go to. Mm-hmm. All right. And then um, I did a book for the 33 and a third album series on In Utero. So those are, those are the ones I'd recommend the most. I think The Rough Guide to Nirvana might still be in print. I'm not sure. Um, but I, I know it's out there. One can buy a used copy. Uh, and that's just, if you're familiar with The Rough Guides, it's you know like a general history and looks at different songs and stuff. I mean, things like the, the ebook, you know, I think you have to buy on Amazon, but... 
if you want to support your local bookstore, certainly you can look up to get the exact title. You can look that up on Amazon and then order the book from your local bookstore. Like in Seattle, we'd go to the Elliott Bay Book Company. And in Portland, Oregon, you'd go to Powell's, Powell's Books. But so, yeah, you can, I always recommend people go to an independent bookstore. They're supposed to be able to order everything. Oh, and then the last book that I had come out was uh, a history of sub pop um, called World Domination, mm-hmm. the pop record story. <laughs> and so Nirvana obviously figures in there a lot. There's some interesting Nirvana stories in there. Oh, and I, I'm on Twitter. I think it's just at Jillian Gar. And on Facebook, I have a writer page, Jillian Gar Writer. And that's like a fan page that you can just follow. You don't need it's not like sending a friend request or anything. And so I, I post articles that I write, or if I'm doing a reading, which I haven't done, I'll do that, or maybe a review of my work. So, And, and we're so excited for our listeners. Uh, we want to make this uh, something great for you as well. Um, we are huge fans of Jillian's writing, and we want you to get your hands on it as well. So um, after you listen to this episode, we want you to go on to our Instagram page at you forgot one. And we want you to comment uh, uh, either uh, Jillian's 33 and a third series book or uh, sub pop world domination. And uh, we've got a few copies of her books that we're going to be sending out and in, in giving away as a huge thank you to our listeners. And uh, to, just to make sure that you get, Uh, this incredible writer's work in your hands. So we want to encourage you to do that as well. Uh, Jillian, thank you so much for doing this again. uh, What a treat to be with you and hear kind of an up up close and in personal view of, of Nirvana and of Nevermind this phenomenal album. So thank you so much for being with us. Well, thanks for inviting me. It's always a pleasure. Rob, we have an important decision to make now. Mm-hmm. We've talked about this album for a really long time. And for two people who came in being like, I don't know if it's really a 100 greatest album. I don't know how long it's going to take me to nom- even nominate it as a potential one. We spent a long time talking about how good this album is and how important this album is. Yeah. And really not saying a bad thing about it. I think everyone can agree it's pretty front loaded and side two isn't as good as side one, but there's still a lot to love on side two. And the album, the band, the videos, their cultural impact is just enormous, not just because they sold so many records, but it, it was a genuine cultural revolution, which yeah. not a lot of albums have generated. Very yeah. few. Yeah, and this is what I kept going back to in my mind as we were talking with Jillian. This is not a personal top 50 favorite album for me. Mm-hmm. There, there, are, there are easily 50 albums I enjoy more and love more and go back to and are, as, and, and are personally important to me. Siamese Dream by Smashing Pumpkins is a more important album to me than Nirvana's Nevermind is. That being said... I don't believe that we can deny that this is one of the hundred greatest albums of all time. I agree. 
Now, I don't know what we do with that because we, when we started doing these bonus episodes in between our season, I, I don't know that I was expecting us to be adding albums to our lists, but yeah. I think that's where it is. And, and I want to quote, you know, we, we've talked a lot about me being, you know, a, a late Gen Xer and you being a millennial and the differences in that kind of cultural experience in our generations and how we experience this album. But at least you were alive and, and can remember, you know, early years of your life mm-hmm. that where, where this was music you heard and encountered. Well, and I, I even vaguely remember uh, Kurt's death mm-hmm. and like there's some, somehow not only is the music ingrained, but like the Courtney Love relationship, um, Francis being born, and like I mean, like a lot of like that, the tabloid kind of stuff. Like, I don't remember learning my ABCs, and I don't remember learning about Kurt Cobain and Nirvana and all the tabloid stuff and the music. But I have that information. I don't know how. I don't know when, but it's been with me for so long. It was just so around me. And so immersive that like, it's just information I know. Yeah. You know, somehow I know Kurt Loder, right. was on TV talking about, you know, the Kurt Cobain's death, you know, like it's, it is in here. I don't mm-hmm. know how it got there, uh, but that that's just how just inescapable all this Nirvana fever was. Yeah. In, and, and I think as well, you know, when, when his body was found, the, the very, you know, it wasn't an organized thing. It was, it was a very kind of just organic response is that the fans in Seattle gathered together at the park and, uh, you know, Courtney came uh, to share her love and support with him and ended up reading out loud the suicide note. Uh And so, I mean, I can still remember, I can still remember the shakiness in Courtney's voice as she read the suicide note out loud and then responded within her anger and, and brokenheartedness as she screamed, you know, she, as she screams to the, you know, screamed in response to his suicide note as she read it out loud to this park full of people. And, and again, all of that was on MTV news. Uh, and, and so it is, it's, it's a strange thing to, to remember. Load up on guns and bring your friends. It's fine to lose and to pretend she's overboard and self-assured oh no i know a dirty word hello 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 with the lights out it's less dangerous here we
I think we have to include this album. But I also wanted to get a sense of someone who's a Nirvana fan who would have no relationship in their lifetime to this band existing. And so in, in many of the same ways that you and I approach bands from the 60s and 70s that we were not alive for, but, but yet we have deep love and appreciation for, mm-hmm. what is it like for someone who loves Nirvana despite the fact that there's no part of their life that coincided with the existence of this band. And so my 16 year old nephew, Scotty, who was a huge Nirvana fan, I, I sent him a text message today, letting him know we were going to be recording this episode. And I just said, Hey, what are, you know, what are your thoughts? What is it about Nirvana that you love? And this is what he sent back to me. He said, the writing in Nirvana songs is the best. I don't particularly love the grunge sound. It's more about if Kurt was born in the 1960s, it would be depressed beach music. No matter what, he was going to make music. And I think his music is very easily transferable to other genres with simple tempo changes or maybe switching an instrument or two. So essentially he's saying he's a fan of Kurt Cobain as a songwriter in the same way that you and I are fans of Bob Dylan as a songwriter and that his music kind of transcends genres because so many people have covered Bob Dylan across genres just because of the, of the, the quality or the strength of the songwriting. And here's a 16 year old who loves his band and saying, here's, here's what I love about him. It's the strength of Kurt Cobain's songwriting. Uh And and I think his songwriting could work even if it wasn't grunge. And, and the reality is, and this is where I struggle, Nevermind is not a top 50 favorite album for me. And In Utero is probably my personal favorite Nirvana album. But the reason that I love In Utero so much and the reason that I'm, that I'm like you fond of Unplugged is I feel like it also is hinting at a coming evolution in style, maybe even genre, of Kurt Cobain's songwriting. And so for me, the greatest tragedy of Kurt Cobain's death was not just the loss of his life, but the fact that at the point where he took his own life, I feel like his best album was still ahead of him, that his best album was actually still to come on the horizon. And if there's anything that makes me sad here celebrating the 30th anniversary of the release of Nevermind, it's the fact that we were robbed of the Nirvana album that may have been even better, that we were Mm -hmm. robbed of the Nirvana album that that we don't have to have this conversation about because we both immediately put it on our list as one of the best. It seemed to be going that way. I mean, I think unplugged is that that's my go-to recording of them, you know? So, yeah, I mean, it it seemed to be going that way Um, or, or they could have broken up. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or he could have gone solo or it could have formed different. I mean, but but again, Anything I think could happen, you know? yeah, it's the it's it, that and that's that's the difficult part of 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 any time the tragedy there's the tragedy of suicide. It's the reality of of the robbed life 
It is the, it is, it is the output. It's the experiences. It is the interaction with other people. It's the, you know, it's, it's a person who should be alive, who is no longer alive. And the, the people who are robbed in that scenario are those who are left living. 